This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. My sister, she said, Dad, I think I know who kidnapped Elizabeth. And he said, well, who, who, who is it? And she said, I think it was Emmanuel. That was the name that he had used um, all during my kidnapping. What was going through your head the first time you maybe had an opportunity to escape? On the one hand, I was extremely hopeful. I I did want to be rescued. I wanted to go home more than anything. Um, But on the other side of things, as soon as that police officer walked in and flipped his badge open, Wanda Barzi, she immediately just clamped her hand down on my leg. And it was just like, it was like reliving everything all over again. It was like being kidnapped all over again. It was like being raped all over again for the first time. It was like being chained up all over again for the first time. What was the core, do you think, of what got you through those nine months? So, we're ready to go? Are you you ready? I'm ready. So I have um, Elizabeth Smart on the podcast, and um, I was really nervous for this, actually, Elizabeth, because I didn't know... For sure. I mean, it's you've been through so much trauma, and and I'm sure everyone says that to you. And you, you there's a movie now on Annie or a two part documentary or or two, not not a documentary because there's actresses and and actors that that play the roles. But it's biography presents Elizabeth Smart autobiography. It's on Annie. You've been through so much trauma. It was 15 years ago. Uh, and I'm sure everyone says, "Oh, you've been through so much. You've been through so." Much. You must get sick of hearing that all the time. Actually, do you? Do you, are you, do you get sick of hearing that? You want to live a normal life. <laughs> I think when I first came home, it was pretty overwhelming to have everyone recognize me and coming up and talking to me. But as I kind of found that I had to create a new normal and kind of just had to accept that that's part of my life, I've come to the point where if that's my biggest problem in life, then that's a pretty small price to pay. Well, we're going to dive into that comment. Um, I'll start off describing the trauma and then maybe hand it off to you. But essentially, and you could correct me where I'm wrong on on some of the facts, but essentially 15 years ago, you were, you were a 14-year-old girl you were lying in bed next to your sister, and there was suddenly a knife to your neck, and somebody who had been who you were familiar with, who had been working in the, the you know around the house or whatever, uh, uh, says basically, "Come with me." It's the middle of the night. You were kidnapped. You were brought to the woods um, to wherever this person was living. His wife was there, um, and basically uh, forced you to change your clothes and become essentially part of their family. You become almost like a, uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but like this weird sort of kidnapped second wife. And he essentially brutal treats you brutally, uh, rapes you consistently for the nine months after that. And then finally, uh, people recognize him. And then through that, recognize you. You were in veils whenever they went outside recognize you, you're saved, you go back to your quote-unquote normal world, but as you just said, it was a new normal. And you know, 15 years later, there's, there's new 
things that come out in this in in this A and E movie. It's it's excellent, but I I really think the story of your renewal and your advocacy now on sexual abuse and uh, you you know we just had. Stephen Tobolsky in here to do a podcast and and he saw you and shook your hand and said you're like a personal hero of his for your endurance and and how you've got through things um but what struck me strikes me the most is during those 9 months somehow you held on to this incredible faith that I mean you were going through horrific horrific things and you held on to this faith that I don't think a fourteen-year-old, nor like my fourteen-year-olds, wouldn't have had that faith. What was, what was the core? Do you think of what got you through those nine months? And did I get any of the facts wrong? <laughs> well, you were pretty accurate with most of them. Um, he wasn't really someone that I was familiar with. I I'd seen him once out while I was school clothes shopping with my mom, and he came to my house once um, to do some yard work, and that was that was it. I had limited to no contact with him at all. Um, so he was really a stranger. Um, and then, yeah, everything else was, was pretty accurate. Uh, I left out horrific details because <laughs> there is horrifying details, but people could, I don't, people could read that online. Uh, it, trust us that it was horrific. More important to me <laughs> is the endurance and how you got through it. Yeah, so my family, they played a huge role in in moving forward. I, I feel so lucky. Actually, it's crazy when I, I feel like it's crazy when I say this, but in in the 15 years since I've been rescued, as I've gone out, I've, I've spoken, as I've met other survivors and I've heard their stories, I feel so lucky that the person that kidnapped me and the person that abused me so much was a stranger because uh, most, most kidnappings, most abuse, most rape that takes place is by a family member or someone that you know. And it could happen over years. It seems like everybody uses a story particularly on a long-term abuse like yours, it was a nine-month period. Everyone uses story to sort of justify lengthy abuse. In in this case, there was religion was kind of this backdrop. Not not religion as anyone else follows it, but his crazy version of it. In many other cases, it's like family or you know some twisted relationship that the that the younger person is not old enough to understand. So yes. Right. And so I think had it been my family, I don't know that I would have survived. Had it been someone that I knew or that was a family friend or someone that, that I was related to, I don't know if I would have survived. And even if I had survived, I don't think I'd be doing what I do today. I think it would have been very difficult for me to move forward. I think it would have been very extremely difficult for me to speak about it to do anything that has anything to do with the whole world of advocacy and pre- sexual exploitation and and prevention. So I feel very lucky that mine came from a stranger because my family has been everything to me in my life. Um, my parents, they I don't I don't know how many music lessons they sat in for me growing up and how many homework assignments they they helped me through or how many packed lunches my mom made because I didn't like the school lunch. I mean, my parents were there every step of the way for me growing up. And when I was kidnapped, all of those things, all those small things, having a lifetime of having them there for me, that really is what carried me through my kidnapping was realizing that they would love me. They still would want me back. And religion, for me, I think it's, 
it should be something beautiful. It should be something that brings you peace. It should be something that uh, gives you hope when you feel like you're alone or you feel like you're wandering in darkness. And my parents from a very early age on, they, they made it pretty simple. They said, you'll know a person by their actions. If they're a good person, they'll be doing good things. If they're a bad person, they'll be doing bad things. So despite the fact that my captors constantly were like, oh, God has commanded us to do this. God has commanded us to do that. This is all, you know, that we don't want to do this, but we have to because we're following God's command. It was always pretty easy for me to separate that from what they said from actual faith, from actual religion, because they were hurting me. They were hurting my family. They made me feel terrible. And that's, that's bad. That's and a bad thing. So for me, that was easy for me to say, well, they're not good people. I think this is a really important thing to underline. It is that simple to recognize that just because they're saying God commands or the religion commands or whatever, bad actions are bad actions and, and good actions are good actions. And particularly in this case, it's pretty clear what's bad and what's good. There's no subtlety here. And I think you've been unfairly, and I'm, I'm just saying it bluntly in the beginning of this, you've been unfairly accused of, let's call it Stockholm Syndrome, where you kind of fall in line, what, you were a young girl, you fall in line with what the captors are saying and and get fooled by them. But I don't think in your story, you ever for a second were, were fooled by what was happening. I think this backlash or this, or not a backlash, but I think that statement on you is 100% wrong. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I knew... I knew the difference between <laughs> what they were doing to me and what's acceptable behavior. I knew it, but I did, from the outside, I can understand why someone might might say that. I can understand why someone might think that, but they just don't know. Why do you think people think that? I think it's easy to think that because my captors, eventually they did get to a point where they did feel like they could take me out into public. I mean, I was covered, I did have a veil on, but they felt like they could. They felt like they had enough control and enough power over me that they would be safe enough to take me out into public. And for a person not being in that situation, yeah, it might seem like it because yes, I was out in public. Yes, there were times we were approached by police officers. It's It would be easy to think, well, she had every opportunity to run away, but that's not how it was. Yes, I was in the public, but I was 14. Not only that, I was, I was quite a young 14-year-old. I was quite a naive 14-year-old. And everything that I had kind of felt safe and secure in had been taken away. So to some extent that must have hit your faith a little bit because did you did you ever think, oh, if I, you know, a lot of people think if I'm a good person, my faith will take care of me. But here you're in the worst situation possible. And like you say, you're uh, a somewhat naive 14 year old. It's probably very easy to think, what did I do wrong to allow uh, this to happen to me? Well, I think for me, I never thought that I mean, I never thought it was my fault. I never I never felt guilt over what had happened because I, I was at home in my bed. I was asleep. I mean, I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. So that was not something that has ever that ever plagued me or ever bothered me. For me, when he kidnapped me, when he did all these things, I never felt like 
this was my doing or somehow I contributed to this situation. For me, it was, this is his decision. It's a bad decision. It's a wrong decision, but he decides to do this. This is all on him. Well, and his wife. And so one thing that that moved me a lot in your story is that during these nine months, uh, uh, when all of these things were happening, uh, a lot of times you would find even the smallest things to be grateful for. So like, for instance, the campsite had a, you had a tent over your head, you know, like, was it hard to sort of remind yourself of these kind of almost self-help techniques to kind of keep on enduring? Like, how did you find things to be grateful for? Again, you're 14 (laughs) and you're probably scared because you don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, I don't, I don't know how I would have (laughs) survived. I think I just got to a point where I was continually trying to, I don't know if outguess is the right word, but I was trying to prepare myself for what could possibly come next. Because initially, initially, every time something happened, I thought this is the worst. Nothing else can happen. Like, this is the bottom. This is the worst of the worst. But every time I thought that, he'd always come up with something new that would make it even worse. And so eventually I got to the point where I was like, okay, let me just look at let me just look at this situation for a second and then in my mind I would try to outguess him and say okay what could possibly make this situation worse and then once I thought of something that would make the situation worse that helped me be grateful for it not being worse that made me mm. um, helped me to find the things to be grateful for mm. so it's kind of started almost from this uh, stoic point of view in that not necessarily optimism, but uh, a severe pessimism. And then if things are not that, you kept expectations as low as possible, like beyond negative. And then, you know, people always say happiness is, this is a weird for me, but happiness is reality over expectations. So if you keep the expectations as low as possible, it's a little easier to be happier, even in this difficult situation. Not that you were happy, but that you survived. Right. Right. Yeah, that would be a fair way of explaining it. And what was going on, do you think, ultimately in his head and in his wife's head that they would do this, that they would even want to do this? And and again, maybe this is a naive question. You've probably been asked this a billion times. I I just want to know. No, it's for him, I think that, well, I think you also have to take a step back and kind of look at that time period, what was going on in the world. I mean, 9-11 had happened. It wasn't like a distant memory. It had happened. It was fairly recent. And everyone's sort of, I think, emotions and vulnerabilities were extra sensitive at that time towards any form of extremism. And he realized that. And he realized that religion was that perfect vehicle to take advantage of of any situation that he could. Because if anyone ever questioned him, he could say, well, that's against my religion, or this is part of my religion. And I think he had gone into that role so long, and he just he just found it was such a powerful, manipulative role that he could play extremely well that he enjoyed doing it. And he enjoyed having control and power over other people. So I think it just grew. I think it started out small and then it got to a point where he did feel uh, he wanted he wanted a young girl. He wanted to, to rape young girls. And so he was able to twist and manipulate religion to the point where he felt like he could justify kidnapping 
to himself, a, a young girl and raper and claim her as his second wife. And he told Wanda Barzi, um, his actual wife, he told her all the things that she wanted to hear. She wanted to hear that she was that she was special. She she had a prior marriage where she had six children, and I I've I've never met her first husband, so I honestly don't know. But the way she made him sound was that he he was schizophrenic, that he abused her, all of these things. I don't know if that's true or not. For all I know, it could be a lie. But that's what she made it sound to me. And so then along came Brian Mitchell and he told her all of the things he wanted to hear. And at first, at first he seemed like straight and narrow kind of guy, like just as straight as straight could be. Like he had a job, he, um, you know, held a position uh, within the Mormon church. He seemed to just be kind of an upstanding guy, but it was like little by little, he kind of led her away and she allowed herself because he told her everything she wanted to hear. She wanted to hear she was special. She wanted to hear she was beautiful. She wanted to hear that she had suffered so much in her life and that she had this great reward waiting for her in heaven. Do I think she knew what he was telling her was a load of crap? Yeah, I think she did underneath. Do you think, I mean, I mean, you two had spent some time alone. Was there ever a moment where you felt like you could bond with her or get her? She was never out to be my friend. Mm. She saw me as her, well, for lack of a better word, slave. Mm. Um, She saw me as someone to do what she wanted her to do, someone that should remain loyal to her over her husband. And, And honestly... kind of hard to say which was worse of the two of them. Even though she had been manipulated by him in some way, like he was sort of this massive controller over the situation. But she she helped enable that. Mm. And she she wanted, he was telling her things that she wanted to hear. And um, he, like she, she supported him in, in his manipulation. She supported him in and whatever he wanted to do. She encouraged him to rape me. She encouraged him. In what way? Like what would she why would she want that? Why would she want that? Why would she encourage him? I think I think probably for a number of reasons. I think on one hand, she allowed herself to fall into what he would tell her. She would hold on to that to try to believe it, try to convince herself that that was right. And if that, if he was right, then then that would mean that she was right. That would mean she was extra special. And so when she would say, when she'd say to me that I needed to be grateful and that I needed to serve my husband and I needed to engage with him sexually, and that was expected of me, um, that. <laughs> I mean, that would make her look like she's a, if let's pretend for one crazy minute that he was, if if they were actually true, they're actually right, then that would appear that she's, you know, this magnanimous, supportive, incredible, suffered so much, um, then that, then she would appear that way. But it would, because so much of her life was invested in this guy's lifestyle, 
if to call it, to put it that way, her brain probably had to convince her, oh, you must be doing the right thing. But at the same time, from her prior marriage, she had six children. She had six children. You can't just, I don't care what happens to you. I don't care how terrible your life is. You cannot ever, after you've had six children, turn aside and say, yeah, that's okay. You go and rape that young girl. Yeah, so clearly I, 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 it's, it's, it's hard to throw around the word mental illness because no one knows, but it almost sounds like a mental illness on her part to be so easily, not me, or not easily, but to be convinced by this guy that this is an okay thing to happen. Like she must have had something deep inside that when she's watching this and encouraging it, something must have felt like there's something wrong here. I don't know though. I'm just I'm asking really more than than wondering. Like, did you ever wonder what is she thinking? He clearly was a, a monster, and I'm saying she's a monster too. But was there ever any hope in you that she might not be? Well, when I when he first told me the first like within the first few hours of me being kidnapped and he said he was taking me to his wife. Yes, I did have hope that there was a woman there. It was going to be okay. Nothing that bad could truly happen. But I felt the utter betrayal of from female to female was so complete from her. That almost makes me feel like maybe she was worse than he was. <sighs> That's hard to say. They're both pretty terrible. Yeah, so so during this time, did you ever, and, and like, again, you held on to faith, gratitude, your family, you always knew would accept you back, um, which by the way, is probably a hard thing to feel because you probably felt so just traumatized by what was going on. And again, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but um, did you ever feel that at any of these things had abandoned you? It's nine months is a long time. Like, did, did you ever feel, oh, God's abandoned me or my faith has or my family's forgotten about me or or I'm, I'm damaged goods? Oh, certainly. I, I certainly wondered if anyone could ever like me again, if anyone could ever be my friend again. I certainly had moments where I wondered if my parents would want me back, if they had known what had happened to me. Um, I certainly had those moments, yes. Um, but I think for me, I felt... The only f the few things that I had to hold on to, one was believing that God was there, that I wasn't completely alone with these two monsters, believing that there was a higher power watching over me. Uh, so that was something that I did hold on to very tightly to for those nine months that I was kidnapped. That's hard though. Like, how do you how do you hold on to that? Yeah. Well, what's the alternative? I mean, the alternative, I think, to to think that you are completely alone, to think that there is no one watching you, that there is no hope to be had in the future. I think that would be harder. I think that is the alternative, though. And I think many, and you know more than me, you you've seen many people in abuse situations. You tell me how many of them lose hope. <sighs> A lot of them. A lot of them do lose hope. And what does losing hope look like? Giving up. Giving up. How do you how do you then how do you then find them after they've given up? I think trying to to for me it's been trying to show them that they're not alone. 
uh, one of the reasons why I've done the documentary, one of the reasons why I've done the TV movie, um, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, why I go out and I share my story is because it is so easy to feel like you're alone, to feel like nobody else could possibly understand what you're going through, to think that the world is going to look at you in a different way than they would have otherwise. I think it's very, very easy to feel that. And so for me, I, I want them to know that they're not alone. I want them to know that this happens actually a lot. And I think we've got daily proof of that in the news. Every time you turn on, I mean, it's someone else coming forward talking about abuse that's happened to them and why they didn't speak out sooner. I think the I think the why they didn't speak out sooner is always is always part of this narrative and and it ignores the fact of how you know okay that that might may or may not be an issue but the real thing that happened was X the these questions that happened later is not X which is the the brutality the abuse the rapes in in many cases um, the harassment in other cases. Uh, it's almost like a way to distract from the question, and I don't want. I think the most important thing about your story is not those nine months, but the fifteen years since, where you've not only rebuilt a life, but have been a strong proponent of this advocacy and helped so many people. But I think it is interesting to address uh, the why, you know, and what people have addressed with you is why didn't you escape? And we talked about it a little bit earlier. There's one question that stands out, which is like the first time police came up to you, I think you were in the library, you're wearing the veil, he, you know, he had, no, there was no food or water. So there, so now you're out and about trying to, to get, um, what was going through your head the first time you maybe had an opportunity to escape? On the one hand, I was extremely hopeful. I, I did want to be rescued. I wanted to go home more than anything. Um, but on the other side of things, as soon as that police officer walked in and flipped his badge open and, you know, flashed my two captors, um, Wanda Barzi, she immediately just clamped her hand down on my on on my leg, and it was like, it was just like, it was like reliving everything all over again. It was like being re kidnapped all over again. It was like being raped all over again for the first time. It was like being chained up all over again for the first time. It was like all of those things that had happened. It, it was just like they happened all over again, and it was just. I for the previous because that was September. So for the previous three four months, I had been so abused and so threatened every single day that if I didn't do exactly what they wanted, then they'd kill me or they'd kill my family. It was like those words were just like going through my head over and over and over again. And on then, I mean. Like I have a law-abiding family, but even still, when I, when I'm driving on the freeway or something, and I see a police car, I automatically look at how fast I'm going. I think anytime you see a policeman, you automatically kind of see, am I doing everything right? Is everything okay? Because um, they are an authority figure, and so there was also this other side of me that was like, well, what if I did say something and he didn't believe me? Because I'm just a kid. What if? He believed my two captors. And what if, what if I said something and and he released me back to my captors? What if he didn't protect me? What if he didn't take me away? What if he didn't rescue me? So in my mind, it was not only, not only was there this fear 
of everything that had happened and like a replaying of everything that had happened. But there was this other side of things that was like, I could be killed if I say something and he doesn't believe me and he leaves me alone with these two people. So it was almost a survival instinct just just to freeze. And plus that was basically what I'd been doing the previous four months was just freezing, was not mm. was not fighting back, was not screaming. And you only have a few seconds to figure this out, right? Like how long was the police officer right there in front of you? He was just there a few minutes. He wasn't there long. Did he ask you to take the veil down or? Oh, he absolutely asked that. But uh, Mitchell immediately spoke up. He said, this is part of our religion. You know, if we were to take her veil off, that would be you know, violating her. And, and he's like, as her father, I can't allow you to do that. I'm so sorry. I just can't allow you. And he's like, well, could I convert for, could I convert to your religion? He said, no, I'm sorry. It takes a lifetime of conversion. When is one person truly converted? You know, mm. it's a it's a lifetime of constant conversion. You know, the only men that will ever see her face are, are me, her father, and will be her her husband one day. And then after we got out of the library, he he laughed and he and he was like, "Oh, that was so good because I'm the only one that will ever see your face because I am your husband." And and that was very low moment. Did you have to play into it though? Did you have to like laugh at his joke? I didn't laugh. I didn't say anything. Mm. I. I, he didn't, I mean, when he would say things like that, it wasn't so much that he expected a reaction out of me. It was just like, he was just trying to show me even Mm. more that he was all powerful, that he had control, complete control over the situation. What do you think would have happened if you tried to break free right then and said to the police officer, yeah, this is me. These guys are bad. Help. What do you, what do you, given that... All, all, all these questions that you were asking yourself are legitimate. Those things could have happened. There's a probability they could have happened. They could have just not believed you. And it sounds like this guy was a master manipulator. Uh, uh, so who knows what could have happened. But what do you think in reality would have happened if you really think about it? Well, from my perspective now, mm-hmm. from my perspective now, yeah, I think I could have been rescued at that point. I think I could have gone home at that point. But... In my 14-year-old mind, I didn't know that. That didn't seem like a strong possibility. Let's fast forward to when you did get rescued. What was, what happened? What were your first feelings? It was the same feelings all over, really. It was... Hope, hope that I would be rescued. It was fear that that if I said something, that they wouldn't believe me, that I was endangering my life, I was endangering my family's life. Not to mention I'd had a further five months of horrific abuse on top. So at that point, I was even, I don't know, even more deteriorated than I was with than my initial contact with the police. What do you mean? What does that mean? Uh, it just means that well, I just been through so much more abuse. I. But how are you deteriorated? Inside? I just felt like I mean, from from day one that I was kidnapped, he was constantly wanting to strip me of everything that made me me, of my name of my family, 
of beliefs that I held, of um, standards that I had. I mean, he was constantly just trying to like knock those down one at a time. And so by the time that I was rescued, I mean, I had been severely, severely abused sexually. I mean, I, it was bad. It was terrible. And um, I had survived so much. And I had, and by that point, I had survived because every decision I made was with survival in mind. And so going back to the prior question about Stockholm syndrome from the outside looking in, the decisions that I made to survive from to an outsider would look like I was going along with what they were saying. I was doing what they were wanting. But from an inside, from me, I was doing that because I was doing that to survive. I was doing that because I knew at the very least I would outlive them. There's a significant age difference between them and me. And so I remember thinking, well, even if I have to wait 30 years for them to die, I will outlive them and I want to survive. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, even if that means cleaning up mouse poop around the camp or um, doing my best to sew on patches onto the disgusting robes or even if that means just lying there, allowing myself to be raped multiple times a day. If that's what it means to survive, then that's what I'm going to do. And so, so much had happened at that point that by the time the police officers came to rescue me, it was just, it was on the one hand, I very, very much wanted to be rescued. But on the other, I was doing what I had done for the previous nine months and was surviving. It was that surviving, um, survival mechanism kicking in. And so, and so what happened? So the police comes up. Are they, they, oh, by then they had already known. It was a lot of police officers. Yeah. I mean, I remember walking up State Street and at first it was just one car and I thought maybe someone was getting pulled over, but then pretty soon it, like the whole street was lined with police cars. They had, by that point, actually, as opposed to the last time, they had really identified this guy. Yes. Um, I'm not exactly sure at what point in the case um, he had become a person of interest, but my sister, she'd been looking at the Guinness Book of World Records and my dad came in and she said, Dad, I think I know who kidnapped Elizabeth. And he said, well, who, who, who is it? And she said, I think it was Emmanuel. That was the name that he'd given, he had used um, all during my kidnapping and, and that he told people was his name prior to my kidnapping. And so then that's when my dad went down to the police station with a couple of my brothers and they did a composite sketch of him. And when that was finally released into the media, uh, there were different family members of his that came forward and brought an actual picture of him and he became a person of interest. So he was positively ID'd as um, that time where, where I was eventually rescued. And um, the, the officers came out, they started talking asking him all sorts of questions. And and from the moment, because during my time with them, he had taken me to Southern California for the winter. Um, I had been able to convince them to return to Utah. And he, he had said before we started back, because we ended up hitchhiking back, he had come up with this whole story of who we were. We were traveling ministers for 
for Jesus Christ. My name was Augustine, Augustine Marshall, and he was Peter Marshall, and Wanda Barzi was going to be Ju- Juliet Marshall. And um, I was from a previous marriage. I My mother lived in Florida. I came from Miami, and when I turned 18, I chose to come and join him and join in his ministry. He had this whole backstory mm. all worked elaborate. out. Very, very elaborate. And uh, so as the officers first started questioning him, that was the story that he gave. He'd always told me never to speak, never to say anything unless I absolutely had to. And if I had said something he didn't want me to say, that I'd be sorry for it. He'd kill me, he'd kill my family. So that threat was always there. And then um, the officers continued to question him. And then they started to question me. And as he was standing right next to me, I was giving the story that he told me to give him. I mean, he was right there, right next to me. And it really wasn't until one of the officers separated me away from my two captors that I and started questioning me. And one of them was like, you know, there's a girl, she's been missing now for a very long time. Her family's never given up hope. They've never stopped loving her. They want her to come home more than anything. Don't you want to go home? And it was really only in that moment that I was finally able to admit who I was. And then then what happened that second? Well, as soon as I did that, uh, they turned me around, handcuffed me and put me in the back of the police car. And- uh, Why'd they have to handcuff you? Well, to be fair to them, I think that they'd never handled a case like mine before. I don't think they ever had anyone come back from being kidnapped. Um, I don't think they they knew what to do. Plus, I'd been gone for nine months. What did you say? Did you say, um, yes, I'm that girl? Like, what, what, what did you exactly say? I did not say, yes, I was that girl. I said, thou sayest, because... Brian Mitchell and Wanda Barzi were, were still there. And I didn't know how much they could hear. I didn't know how much they were saying. So if I was going to admit who I was, I wanted to do it in a manner that if they were to just heard, hear the words coming from me, they wouldn't exactly know what I was admitting to. Hmm. So it did take me a minute to respond. It did take me a minute to say those words and then, and then to eventually say that, yes, I am Elizabeth Smart. And then when I was handcuffed, I was like, oh my gosh, I survived nine months of hell and now I'm going to prison. I, I can't believe it. And so so you're in the back of the police car. There's mm-hmm. two officers in the front. Mm-hmm. They know who you are or they pretty much know who you yeah, are. Yeah, they Maybe know they, who I was at that point. And did any of them say, hey, don't handcuff her or let's hug her? No, Um so much happened that day. I could be missing a fact. Someone could have said something, but in my memory, I don't remember anyone saying anything. I just remember them handcuffing me, putting me in the back of the car, telling me I had to go with them. And and if that if that was the case, if that if my memory remembers it accurately, um, then I mean, I hope things have changed. Since I mean, I then. guess maybe they. But I guess they wouldn't have known what I've been through for nine months. They wouldn't know if I'd be violent or if right. I would, I don't know, go crazy in the car. So I I think they just decided that was probably the best protocol to follow. Plus, I think I've heard or had heard that any civilian riding in the car with the police in the back had to be handcuffed. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, I don't know. 
I guess that's just what they felt was the right thing to do. And so they did it. But that obviously made me be like, oh, shoot, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Like, so your, what, so your what fear have is I not done? over yet. Like you're, no, my a, fear really didn't end until it was a little while later when I was in the police station. I was just in this small room and um, I remember just not knowing what was going on. I remember thinking, well, if they thought I was innocent, wouldn't they have taken me home or wouldn't they have let me call my family or or something? Wouldn't they, wouldn't they tell me what's going on? Um, and then as I'm kind of thinking those thoughts, the door just burst open and it was my dad came running into the room and it really wasn't until he was hugging me that I finally felt it was going to be okay. I didn't know what was going to happen still, but I felt like it was going to be okay, that I, was, I wasn't going to be hurt again the way that these two people had hurt me the last nine months. It was going to be okay. And then were you, were, were you able to be released with your dad? Um, they took my dad and I up to the Salt Lake headquarters where my mom was waiting with my brothers and my sister. And um, so I was reunited with them. And then after that, I was taken to the hospital where they checked checked me out, tested me for everything, I think. And then after that, I was finally brought home. So then you're brought home that first day. And it's not like they threw a party for you or anything. Like, what happened then? Um, I remember, I remember walking into my house and just thinking it looked like heaven. It was so beautiful. Like there was carpet on the floor and and running water, and my harp was still in the same place that it had been when I was kidnapped. And I remember trying to play the last song that I had learned and could, couldn't even make it through the first page. Um, and I, I remember feeling a little bit embarrassed that I couldn't finish the song, but my mom and dad were both just crying and they're like, it's great, it's great, it's beautiful. Um, I remember taking a bath. I mean, I hadn't bathed in nine months, so that was pretty high up on my list of priorities to do when I got home. Um, I remember that that evening just being with my family and just being so happy. I feeling like everything that had really been taken away from me had all of a sudden been given back and just being so excited about it. And so just feeling like I didn't want to miss a single second. I didn't want to miss out on on anything. I didn't want to miss a day of school, which probably if you asked me that six months later, I would have been like, yeah, it's okay. I can miss a day of school. But feeling like that when I came home, I didn't want to miss a day of school. I didn't want to miss, I don't know, holding a boy's hand for the first time. I didn't want to miss going to college. I didn't want to miss having a life, having a future. I didn't want to miss out on any of the normal parts of life that I thought had been taken away from me. Even that first night, it seems like you had this, this your first night back, you had this strength. Like From what I understand, your your family, very caring for you, wanted, to, wanted you to feel safe, wanted to all kind of sleep around each other so you would feel safe. Um, but you were like, no, back to, I'm going to sleep in my bed, the same bed that you were kidnapped from. Like, did this, was this strength or was there, did you feel, was it, were you wrestling with the post-trauma here or? No, I think I, I mean, my my bed never hurt me. It wasn't my bed's fault that I was kidnapped. So I had, I've never had like but what a negative memories. feelings. No associated with my house or my bed or my room. I never had negative feelings towards that because they 
never did anything wrong. It was this man. He he's the one that violated everything. Violated my family's home, violated my bedroom. I mean, it was it was all him. So if you take him out of the picture, I'm still left with a wonderful home and family. And, and were you confident that he was in jail and not getting out like on parole on a bail or anything like that? I mean, at that point in time, that wasn't even a thought in my head. Mm. You were just happy to be I was just out. happy to be home, happy to I don't know, be able to shower, happy to have food, happy to And and it's such an unusual thing obviously for a family to have to deal with, but how how did you then begin the discussions with your family about what happened during those 9 months? It was you know, it's really interesting because when I got home, I I was just feeling like I didn't I didn't want to talk about it, not because I couldn't, but because I didn't want to spend like the rest of my life talking about. It. I didn't want to go and re rehash it. But here we are 15 years later. <laughs> I mean, here we are 15 <laughs> years later, but I think that was very helpful. I couldn't I couldn't have come home and done what I'm doing today. I couldn't have come home and just immediately come out with a book. I couldn't have come home and immediately come out with, you know, a documentary and and a TV movie. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have come home and just immediately stepped into this role of advocate against sexual violence and and child abuse and kidnapping. I couldn't have done that. I needed to come home. I needed to take time for me to to recreate a a sense of normal normal wow can't speak <laughs> normalness in my life <laughs> i needed to experience that and, and then i needed to go back to high school and i needed to go to college and i needed to experience all the things that came with that before i think i could have come to the stage because now yes now i do speak about it a lot and i have done these various projects, but that's because I choose to. And that's because I feel like there is a greater purpose here for me. I don't feel like I I have to do this. I feel like this is something I want to do because I have met so many other survivors who who can't share their story, who's, who are scared, who feel alone, who feel abandoned, who feel like nobody else could possibly understand where they've been. And having been where they've been and then having experienced everything in between there and where I am today, you know, having had people question me, question my story, question my, I don't know, my mental stability, um, I, I know what that's like. And so I feel like if I can if I can show it, if I can help people see what it really was like, then when they find out that their best friend was sexually abused or their sister or their friend or someone that they know is sexually abused, they won't ask them the same dumb questions that I've been asked for the last 15 years. Yeah, so 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 it's almost like your story of showing these questions and and your answers provides an example of it's like a guidebook to many of these people who have been abused and come out of it that it's okay you can live uh, I don't know. No life is normal, but you can live a real, fulfilling, and happy and successful life afterwards. You don't have to be. Yes, this trauma happened. Yes, you'll never forget it. But life can be uh, successful afterwards. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be this blight on your life forever. In, right. in some ways, and so for you, I mean, like, so you're you're married. Um, I mean, what was it like? And I hate to uh, ask these questions, but like when you finally were like in a loving relationship, someone you had met that you had loved, like how did you, how were you able to be intimate without these, uh, this trauma sort of rushing back? 
Is that a personal question? <laughs> Everyone asks. It's okay. Oh, I'm still. I'm one of those uh, people <laughs> asking the same questions. That's okay. I think everyone does wonder. Well, once again, if I came home, if I came home to an arranged marriage, where I was forced into it, if it was with someone who greatly outnumbered my few years, um, if it was, I think if if it was expected like immediately right off the bat, no, I don't think I'd be able to. I think I would have a problem having um, having a marriage with my husband. I think I would have problems. Um, but when I came back, that wasn't immediately expected of me, nor was I, nor did I have an arranged forced marriage um, because I, it might work for some people. I don't know, but that wasn't expected for me. And um, I was able to go back to being a 15 year old girl. I was- High school students, your friends, cool in general? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were times when I'd walk down the hall at school where people would say, Elizabeth Smart. And I would turn my head to see who was calling, thinking, oh, maybe it's one of my friends. But then no one would be there. They just wanted to see if I'd turn to see if it really was me. Mm. So, I mean, yes, there was some of that. But for the most part, people who were my friends before my kidnapping were still my friends afterwards. And people who were... Fake friends, they faded pretty quickly. Um, and so then, again, like when you when you did meet someone you loved, and and he knew your story, obviously. Mm-hmm. What what do you think were the components that allowed you to say, okay, I'm going to have a loving kind of normal as normal relationship as possible that I could with this person? Honestly, by the time I got to that point, I mean it was almost. It was almost 10 years between the time that I got rescued and the time that I got married and decided to take my relationships, well, my relationship to that level. Um, yeah, there was almost a decade in between. And during that time, I had kind of all of the normal growing up things, you know, holding hands for the first time, having my first kiss, going on a date, going on lots of dates, dating a lot. <laughs> um and so then when I found my husband, it, our relationship just progressed like any other healthy, normal relationship. And, and you know, when our wedding night came, it wasn't, it wasn't awkward. It was just the way I imagined many wedding nights go. And now also you're such an advocate against, you know, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation. I think your case was so high profile, it kind of almost gives society a chance to say, oh, that was one case and we don't have to think about the other ones, but how prevalent in our society is this problem? Like, how do you measure it and how prevalent is it? Well, I mean, I can talk statistics. It's one in four women, one in six men sexually abused. That's that's a lot. But for me personally, those numbers really did not sink in until I started meeting them, until I started speaking and they started coming forward and saying, Elizabeth, I've never told anyone this before, but when I was your age, the same thing happened to me. Or my husband raped me or my you know, college roommate's boyfriend or whatever. When people started coming forward and telling me these issues, I can say with 100% surety that every time I've spoken, I 
look out in the audience and I know that I'm not the only woman in, or mm. the only person because it's not just a woman's problem. Men are raped too. It's a lot harder, I think, for them to come forward because they're not supposed to have that happen to them. They're supposed to be the strong ones. They're supposed to be the stronger sex, supposedly. But um, I, I can look in a room and I know that I'm not the only one who has experienced those things. And I mean, I can say that with 100% surety because... I, Almost every event that I've ever spoken at, I've always had people come up to me and disclose their abuse to me afterwards. So I mean, it's it's it, everywhere. It's it's unbelievable what what you've been doing. I mean, you sharing your story in all these different ways has really, uh, I th- and I think reminding the nation that or the world that this happens is so important. How, how many years would you say you've been in kind of the advocate role? I don't know. It kind of came on pretty gradually because when I got home, I my dad, he kind of started mentioning stuff to me about the Amber Alert and he told me what it was. And I was like, oh yeah, I was like, that's a good thing. That would be a really good thing. So I went with him to Washington um, because I wanted to, because I thought it was a good thing. And so we went and we started talking about the Amber Alert to different um, different congressman and and it just started off kind of small like that and then I guess it's been really more in the last seven years that I feel like I've really taken it on and embraced it well Elizabeth you've done such a great job you really are like a hero this is such an important issue I'm so glad you took the time to talk to me about it and you're you're Biography. Uh, I mean, the movie about your your story is on A and E right now. Biography prevent, presents Elizabeth Smart autobiography. It's a two part series. I definitely recommend everyone watching this. This is an issue that everybody has to be aware of. And I mean, I don't know. Obviously, a million people have said I'm sorry for what has happened to you, but I hope also that a lot of good comes from you taking this path of sharing your story. So again, that makes you, you know, a hero. So, so thanks for coming on this, on this podcast. Thank you so much. For more from James, check out the James Altucher show on the choose yourself network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me because I really love getting to do these podcasts and to talk to all of these incredible people. I learned so much, and I hope you learned so much as well. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.